Hello, my name is Dan Thoreau, and as always, I am your host. This is the Space Biff Spacecast, and today I am joined by a very special guest. Uh, this is one of my favorite people in board game design. Of course, I'm speaking about Amabel Holland. Welcome, Amabel. Thank you for having me. Thank you for joining me. Um, I'm delighted that you are, strictly speaking, as long as we don't include uh, my abortive first podcast, you are the first return guest on the SpaceCast. How does that make you feel? It it makes me feel uh, pretty good. Um, so actually, when do you remember when we talked? It was last year. You remember? But do you remember when it was that we talked? Like what time of the year? Yeah, like like a, a month. No, I don't. Oh, I, I don't either. I was, I, was, I was trying to figure out if, when we talked last year, if it was after I figured some things out or before I figured some things out, you know? That's a good <laughs> question. Why don't I look in here? I can actually go back. Um, let's see. I spoke... Okay, I spoke with a uh, certain Tom Russell on Thursday, April 16th, 2020. Okay, so that that was... Sh so at that time, yeah, I still thought that was my name at that time. Okay. <laughs> there we I, was, go. I, was, I was trying to figure out, like, what was... what Did, did I know then, you know? Uh, sure. <laughs> and I, I didn't, so... Well, I'm glad to have you on, and I'm I'm so happy to have you on, especially uh, now that you've had this awakening. Um, it's 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 like I'm getting to know you uh, all over again as a more authentic person. Yes, it's it's <laughs> ten out of ten. I like it. It's it's great. <laughs> so you have designed a board game, which is which is probably why we're chatting tonight. And I've played this board game three times now. And like many of your board games, this, uh, this, is, this is likely going to be one of the most interesting and, dare I say, controversial board games of the year. <laughs> this is Nicaea. Now, is this your game, Amabel? I've got that yeah. right, haven't I? Yeah. What? Why Nicaea? Why, why Nicaea? Yeah, um, where did this idea come from? At what point were you sitting around and you thought, I want to make a board game about the first council of Nicaea? Um, I mean, it was a couple years back, I, I would presume. Um, and it, it came from always having an interest in, in the topic. Um, because growing up, I, I mean, I was a church kid. <laughs> okay, I, I was I was very very deep into the church, and I really liked church history, and read it uh, very very naively. Mm -hmm. And um, we can maybe talk about that <laughs> uh, in the show, um, but. At a certain point, you know, having moved away from that and back towards it and away from it and back towards it, um, you know, just so, so religious history, history of the church has always been something that's been very interesting to me. Mm 
mm-hmm. right? Um, and I just thought that Nicaea would be a neat topic for a game. The things, I, ideas about church history that I could express with it and dynamics I could explore in, in, in just in the game sense as far as like shared incentive games and what I like about them, which aren't necessarily what everyone else likes about them. Um, so that's kind of where it came from. And it took a little while to come together because um, the very first version that I was working on of it, which was, you know, a couple years ago, um, it played too much like a Euro game. Mm-hmm. Like there are points for this and points for that, and and then no, that's it wasn't working. That's not really my my style anyway. So um, I had to kind of strip it down to its kind of essence. And um, once I figured out that it was more of a card game than a quote unquote board game, because it's it's basically like a, a tableau building game. Sure. Um, once I figured that out, it really clicked together uh, and came together a lot quicker. And and I started working on it for to be this year's big end of year game. And uh, that's, that's where we're at. <laughs> so that, that's where that came from. So you mentioned um, that you were a church kid and in the church. When you say the church... Um... What denomination? Are you just speaking broadly of uh, Christianity, or are you so, Catholicism? What what denomination would, would that be? So I was speaking more broadly. Um, now I was baptized Lutheran, mm-hmm. but uh, most of the church I went to was a uh, Protestant denomination called the Church of the Nazarene. I believe. Uh, so it was my great grandparents' church, and like they would pick me up twice a week to take me to church because my rest of my family didn't really go to church except every once in a while on Sundays because um, uh, my mother wasn't particularly religious. Uh, my father, uh, whose family was Catholic, uh, wasn't super religious either. That um, the family was he he particularly wasn't. Um, but I was, church was, was my favorite place to be in the world. I loved going to church. I loved sermons. Uh, I did Bible quizzing, like, mm-hmm. competitively. And the thing about Bible quizzing, you know, um, it's not really about having any real knowledge or understanding. It's about memorizing and regurgitating. Right. <laughs> so, I, but as a kid, I was really good at that, right? Um so that's kind of my, that was kind of my religious background. I got, I just, I felt comfortable in the church in a way I didn't feel in other spaces. Mm-hmm. That that uh, eventually changed. <laughs> right. Well, we'll get to that change in a moment. Um, so, you know, you described this process. So you were baptized in sort of it's a Lutheran church, so kind of a high tradition church. Um, but it's. Do you have any memories of that, or are your memories primarily in that, like, Wesleyan uh, Church of the Nazarene? So the memories are kind of mixed up a bit, because um, I, I remember 
going to the Lutheran church. I remember going to the other church. Um, the other church was a lot stricter about certain things. Like it was kind of a, uh, now don't, don't dance that kind of church. Oh, okay. <laughs> you know, um, uh, I remember, uh, yeah, and that's, I did the Bible quizzing through that church. Uh, I believe I did Sunday school through the Lutheran church, but it's, it's kind of hazy. Uh, I'll, I'll, you know, frankly, a lot of my like childhood memories, I don't have a strong gra- grasp on. Mm-hmm. Um, and with the church, I, I so I have so I, I have what you could charitable, charitably call religious trauma. So I don't I don't always remember things like chronologically or what happened when. Does that make any sense? It absolutely does, and and on a couple of levels, um, you know, I, I'm there's a lot you're saying that I have a lot of sympathy for. Um, so I grew up in a Mormon community mm-hmm. um, with a very uh, old school uh, traditionalist Mormon background with ancestors who had crossed the plains. Um, you know, uh, one of our grandfathers was Joseph F. Smith. Um, and I, too, uh, it's very common in Utah um, and kind of all throughout the Mormon belt to do what's called seminary, which is that you actually will go before school or even in Utah. I don't, I think this is also the case in Idaho and part of Arizona where school will have next door to the school, will have a uh, Latter-day Saint uh, seminary and you'll actually take a off period so that you can go to seminary. So I did all that and we would, um, we would do scripture mastery, which is a series of 100, um, scriptures that you are expected to know 25 from the old testament new testament book of mormon and doctrine and covenants and people would memorize them and be able to recall them very rapidly and that kind of sums up many uh mormons uh, bible knowledge <laughs> is this ability to just very rapidly um call up sort of these archipelago little islands of meaning without much context um, and, uh, and also very familiar, this idea of religious trauma for reasons that we might get into. Um, now, so when you describe yourself as a church kid, I think many people, uh, when they see Nicaea, they might make an assumption that it's a church kids game. Uh, I often get this. People often write me about my website and say, oh, are you a Catholic Thomist? Uh, because I have St. Thomas Aquinas on my header. And, um, now if you'll permit me to quote from uh, your rule book. Oh, go right ahead. Um, I think that this might disabuse anyone. They might be a little confused. Just the first paragraph. I'll read the first paragraph mm-hmm. of your introduction. Um, it's the year 325, and it's a pretty chill time to be a Christian. Not only has it been a hot minute since they were forced to renounce their faith on pain of death, but the Emperor Constantine has really leaned into it, hoping it will unite the often fractured Roman Empire. So the big guy isn't super thrilled when bishops immediately get into nitpicky esoteric arguments that John Quintus Romanus doesn't give two flips about. 
These controversies, particularly around the teachings of Arius, threaten to splinter the new faith and disrupt the fragile peace Constantine has established after 20 years of war. He demands that the bishops gather together in the city of Nicaea to come to an accord. He doesn't really care what these nerds decide, so long as there's a consensus. So, Amabel, here is uh, an introduction that I imagine that if somebody comes along and they think, hey, here's a board game or a card game by a church kid, and uh, so I'm going to get this so that I can, you know, uh, reenact putting Arius in his place or something. Um, <laughs> I think that maybe they would be disabused just within that paragraph. So how how did you decide? How, how does this game go from church kids uh, to to what it really is. And is that just too enormous of a question? I mean, no, it's, it's not. It's just, it's, it's, <laughs> I mean, that it, so there's a, there's a game design answer to that. And there's a like long personal answer to that. And the game design answer, you know, we'll, we'll start with that. Um, is that I'm trying to center the council and to a degree that the church that held it as a political phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. And so it is very important to get away from uh, veneration, right? And, and, and hagiography. So, um, that's why the tone is. I have to. I have to set the tone right away because I, mm. I remember uh, when I leaked, or didn't leak when I revealed some of that intro text and some of the the card text. Um, there were people online who were uh, miffed by it. Even people who weren't particularly religious, they felt like the the tone was off. It's not the right tone for a historical game, and. No, the, the tone is, is vital towards centering this as being a temporal rather than divine thing. And to get away from that kind of starry-eyed church kid, oh, the Nicene Fathers, <laughs> you know, um, get away from all that and, and center it as, you know, a... Uh, uh, a gathering of people because uh, I, I, I strongly feel that, you know, even if the, the past is a different country they do things differently there um, that people in the end have always been people. Sure. You, you know, um, always been capable of, of great kindness and great cruelty. Uh, always been capable of, of pettiness and self-delusion and, and also um, grace. I mean, and it's messy and human. And I want to emphasize that, you know. Um, so the that tone is such an important part of, of setting that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it's, it's a tricky line to kind of navigate because... Um, I'm I'm trying to still be affectionate, like okay. I'm 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 trying to to 
call the church on this nonsense in some places. But I'm not trying to be mean-spirited about it, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Sure. Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure how well I succeed in, in that. Certainly, if, if you ask some folks uh, who, who have read some of the card text, particularly, uh, they, they, they will not think that, I, <laughs> that I, I managed to navigate that space particularly well. Because yeah. a lot of it is, um, I mean, a lot of it is, it, it's, it, I, I describe it as blowing a raspberry, you know? Mm, okay. So do you feel like one of the reasons that you might have to be a little irreverent is just that the weight of the reverence in how this has been approached as uh, sort of a hagiographic history and as tradition is so enormous that speaking about it sort of in a, you know, the usual neutral historiographical language, it doesn't pull away from that enough. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, 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 that's precisely it. it. It It's a corrective, as it were. Generally, what, what I'm trying to do is, uh, because, you know, the only history we have of Nicaea is, is church history, history written by the church to make the church look good. Um, and it's not, it's coming from a, a period of time where people generally weren't trying to write history to be a objective record of events. Yeah. Yeah. But to be propaganda, to be a, a, a story to be used. So um it's so I'm trying to kind of center that and acknowledge that and provide like a a middle school tweaking of it, as it were. Because I, you know, I I will gladly admit that the the humor uh, in in the game is, as far as the textual humor, because I think there's perhaps um, a kind of humor to the way the game plays out, mm-hmm. but the the textual humor is not the most droll or sophisticated humor. It's you know, it's it's goofy, sometimes bawdy little jokes, so. Right, right. Well, and in a moment, I'd like to read a couple of... Uh, oh, go, go right ahead. The game. Um, when, and we'll get to that. Um, mm-hmm. So, do you feel like there's value... Uh, do you think that maybe the tone in the game is reflective of the value in satire and other media? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Because, the, 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 and you know, the thing with satire, of course, because the word satire gets overused an awful lot to, to basically mean uh, don't don't criticize me for my jokes. Sure. And, <laughs> but you know, valid satire has a purpose and a target, and that target really should be, I would think, uh, punching upwards rather than downwards. And you know, I I, I have because I, I get com- I get comments on, on on the things I'm working on uh, from random people on the internet, and there was someone who uh, said, you know, that it feels like you're, you're you're punching down on the church, and the the church isn't capable of being punched down upon. It's not 
it's not a marginalized thing. It's it's a institution. <laughs> mm-hmm. So for me, that's a you know that makes it a a more than valid target for for satire. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I guess I would say the approach is satirical. I'm always I'm always interested in in sort of the punch up versus punch down rubric, um, because having come from uh, a Latter Day Saint background, which is you know an enormous institution in terms of uh, temporal wealth, uh, their value you know their their most recent valuation puts them in the ballpark of like Disney. Um, Yet I've seen so many uh, Mormons who basically argue that they're a persecuted population, and there is definitely that persecution complex. And um, some have even made that argument that you know the Mormon Church tends to send young men and women out on eighteen-month to two-year missions, um, not only to proselytize, although of course that's a function, but also so that they will be you know you're forced to dress in your Sunday best and go out and annoy people. So they're kind of rude to you uh, to reinforce that persecution complex. And so I, I know of many uh, Latter-day Saints who feel like they are a punched down upon uh, group, even though I, you know, I, I don't know if I would characterize it that way. Um, I mean, I mean, I mean, certainly. Um, so I would certainly say that people within a religious you know, within a faith, the practitioners of a faith could could be punched down upon. Because, I mean, certainly look at um, anti-Catholic bias in, in America uh, much earlier, in, say, the 20th century, mm-hmm. or in the 19th century, for that matter. And there certainly was some of that directed towards, uh, that, that kind of bias directed towards the Mormon church. Um, but as an institution, you know, as a... Yeah, I, I I can't think of any institution that where you'd be punching down because institutional power in and of itself is is always stacked in its favor, you know. Sure, sure. So why don't we dig into the game itself? And I, I think we'll return to this idea of maybe your personal uh, journey sure. in terms of the game, um, since as long as we're on the concept of the design. So. Uh, I think that the way I would describe the structure of Nicaea is a stock game. Uh, is that fair or is that outlandish? I mean, that's the way that I've kind of cheekily described it. Yeah. Um, so, why, so why don't you cheekily describe to us how it functions uh, or maybe only partially functions as a stock game? Like what's the, what's the elevator, long elevator, long, slow, rattling sure. elevator pitch uh, for Nicaea? So, um, you are taking on the roles of prominent bishops and you're basically trying to decide what is heterodox theology and what was, and what is orthodox. And um, so we have five big issues that are divided into uh, two opposing positions on each issue. And you are basically, you are making an argument uh, which is buying a share, basically, or mm-hmm. doubling down, which is buying a second share in that in that side of an argument, and whichever 
side of an argument has more shares in player hands um, will be, that'll be what's true. So the majority will decide what's true and what is, oh, that, that is heresy. <laughs> so um, that's basically how it works as a stock game in that you are, you are quote unquote investing yourself in these positions and trying to see if they pay off. Because if the position uh, is decided to be true, you're going to get some victory points. If decided not to be true, you, you don't get squat. Right. So so stocks, but in the sense that rather than a, you know, a, a dynamic value uh, informed by many purchases or sales, kind of in the sense that it's a flipped switch, their value is either zero or it's the value that you earn when it when it wins. Yeah. So there are five major issues. Um, now, I I think that one of the things that's interesting about this game is the way that they're represented or perhaps not represented. And I think you probably know where I'm going with that, Amabel. Why don't you walk us through, uh, just to give listeners kind of a sense for what they'll be arguing over, what are those five arguments um, and, and why... Why would they might maybe matter to somebody who is uh, uh, a guest who has been invited by Constantine in order to put Christianity at rights? So the first three uh, basically are about Arianism. So right. Arianism. But wait, so which one of us, uh, Dan? Which one of us? Uh, went to school and like learned theology and might <laughs> and, and might be able to, be, to more accurately describe the Aryan position. You know, this is this is very funny. Because, <laughs> you, on the spot, um, but. <laughs> you know, one of the reasons I love this game is because it intersects with my education so uh, so much, and I'm I'm actually a little bit tempted to use this game the next time I cr uh, teach the development of Christian thought. Um, and I'm wondering if I could get away with it. I, I was curious if you would differentiate those first three or if you would lump them together. Yeah, well, I mean, so they, I mean, they, they so the reason why they're split into three of, of our five issues is that if, if the game didn't have like at least five issues, there wouldn't be much game. Sure. So, so, so part of it is is a game thing, and then part of it is is also because historically, um, what happened is that Arianism was rejected outright. Right. Like all this stuff is wrong, and all the stuff that's you know the, the non-Arian position, what became the, the Nicene Creed, um, is correct. But you know, if it hadn't gone that way if they said, "Well, we'll take, we'll keep this part of it and not that part of it." That very well could have happened. I'm not sure if it would have happened along the the, the three lines presented in the game. Sure, but um, really, I, I think part of it too is that just as the impetus for this gathering, you know, is Constantine saying, "I I don't care." about this just pick something it, it because it he treats it pretty much as as fungible mm -hmm. 
um, the game treats it as fungible. It also treats all the historical figures as fungible. You know, so while this card might represent the uh, Hamusian position, um, it doesn't necessarily represent it. It represents a just a in abstract a position. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of getting at the idea that you know what we're arguing about isn't super crucial. But I, I did just get out the cards to because um, here's the thing, Dan. I when this comes out, it'll be my fifty eighth game, and I'm already working on like the sixtieth and the sixty first. So I <laughs> I don't always have a great memory for the specifics of. Something well, why, that I already worked on. And, and that's totally fair. Why don't we walk through it together? Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I really like about this game is that this might be the first board game I have played that doesn't assume Nicene Christianity. And that's a little bit refreshing. So you, I, you know, you might, I don't know how much you would know this, um, but one of the reasons that Mormons are not liked by mainstream Christianity is because Mormons are technically anti-Nicene. I I I I I had heard that. I hadn't, you know, I don't know the the super specifics of it, but I, I was vaguely aware of that. Yeah. So so we'll go through these. So the first issue you have is uh, the question of uh, is it Homo Ugian or is it Homoi Ugian? which is, of course, we're getting into, uh, you know, Greek philosophical concepts, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so ugia being uh, substance or essence, this idea of what is your ugia? So is it that the, is it that the son, Jesus, is the same substance as God or a similar substance as God? So already your very first issue shows this idea that, you know, theologians love to nitpick over old Greek words. So so here we have that issue. The second one um, is the son co-equal with the father, um, you know, uh, or is the son subordinate? Um, And this is where we're starting to get a little bit more into the nitty gritty of where Mormonism does diverge uh, pretty substantially from Christianity. Uh, And of course there, you know, in, in any theology, you find so many, what I would term kind of weasel words where people are like, well, there, there, we're not saying that Jesus is subordinate to the father, even though he was, had a beginning and was created. We're not saying that, but you know, they are. That, that's mm-hmm. what it means. If other if other premises are true, that's what follows. And then the third is co-eternal. Was the son co-eternal with the father, not made but begotten, or was the son created? And so there were therefore there was a time when Jesus didn't exist because he was created at some point. So so yeah. these are and and you know so those, those yeah and those three together you know that this kind of, yeah. Well, yeah, you you put these three together and you have a pretty good summation of uh, of that central butting of heads between Mm -hmm. uh, Athanasius and Arius. Right. Yeah. And, 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 you know, and and, and here's the thing about why that, you know, quote unquote matters or doesn't matter. Depends on who you ask, Um, because the Arian position is the one that makes 
the most sense in a common sense way because time is linear as we experience it. Right. Right. Um, so, you know, the idea that, uh, uh, you know, so sons naturally come after fathers right. and the idea of them existing at the same time is like, how, how, how is that possible? And, and it, it breaks the brain a little bit, which is why I think Arianism was, was so very popular. Um, right. But then because the, the, what became the Nicene position, um, you know, it says, well, you know, if, if you believe that, then, then it's actually saying this, that, and the other thing. You know, it's implying this, that, and the other thing. And, you know, we can't have that because that, that, that is undermining this, this tenet of the faith. But, you know, I'm sure if you, if you ask, like, lax Catholics, uh, you know, a, a lot of them probably, probably will have some Arianism in there. <laughs> You know, right? I remember. So I did. I, I, um, in my youth, I was a Mormon missionary for two years, um, and most of my time was spent on um, the Crow Reservation. But mm-hmm. um, in Montana, uh, there are t- entire towns that were founded uh, and basically dominated by certain churches. And so, um, for a period of time, I was actually up in uh, Helena, Montana, which is very Catholic. And um, we uh, had an interaction where uh, some other missionaries, not us, were teaching a young woman uh, about, uh, you know, the, the church and the gospel and whatever. And they started talking about the Trinity. Um, but the Mormon version in which Jesus is not considered the same substance as God, but is considered equal, but was created, et cetera. And, um, and this young woman goes, well, yeah, that's what I believe too. And, um, and so, yeah, I think you're right. I think that it's so commonsensical that many people without even realizing it are assuming uh, effectively, the Arian heresy's position, and I think that's why uh, you know once the decision was made at Nicaea to say, "Hey, this this isn't kosher," uh, maybe, maybe that's the wrong maybe that's the wrong term. Um, say, "Hey, we're not doing this." <laughs> I just um, yeah, I just cut up right, not kosher. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Um, to say, "Hey, we're, we're we're not doing this," is because they could see how common sense it was and how easy it was for people who weren't, you know, nerdy theologians to grasp onto it. Right. Part of the reason, I think, why, you know, because even after Nicaea, Arianism continues. It doesn't go away immediately. Right. You know, um, it it still has kind of a, you know, there are certain Eastern emperors who are, big on Arianism. It's the version of the the faith that um I wanna say the Goths and Vandals uh are 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 baptized in. Correct, yes. And um which means that you know it just continues to exist for, for quite some time. And that's you know, there's always there's always that fracture there in the church. And that's something that I, I try to emphasize in the way I frame the game that um, 
you know, the church history tries to provide this picture of the the history of, of the church being right, and then there are people who are wrong, and everyone who's right, we're all in agreement on everything, and you know, they they weren't. I mean, another one, the issues in the game uh, is Easter. Like, when, when is Easter? Yeah. And how do we figure out when Easter is? And they make a decision at Nicaea, but, you know, that decision's just ignored. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and, and so it's, it's like, uh, so, so, so that's the fourth of the five issues. And, the, the, and then the fifth issue we have is about the Miletians, um, which were a schismatic sect that, if I'm remembering correctly, uh, felt that the church was too lenient on the lamp side. So, um, and they kind of were, so they were forgiven at Nicaea rather than being punished for, you know, being jerks. Um, I partially as a political move to shore up this, this, this sect so they could push out Arianism, push out Arian. So, um, so those are those five issues. Um, (laughs) when I, and to me, I feel like the, uh, the one that is the most tangible, the issue that if I were living in the fourth century, the one I would care about is that last one. Uh, it's the Miletians, because to me, the question over the lapsi is actually one of the big questions mm-hmm. that I want answered um, as, as sort of this moral issue. And I, I, I actually kind of don't care about the other four issues all that much. Um, yeah. And I feel like most people, uh, w- even if they don't re- realize it, if they were living in that time, they would probably feel the same way. Um, do you Do you think that might be the case? Oh yeah, I absolutely. Um, because the, the thing, so, so I, I, so to give like really quick background, which again might might I mean not be totally one hundred percent on on all my facts here, but um, you know the last night essentially you had you had the um, persecutions where you know you either make this sacrifice to these. Roman gods for for the health of the emperor, or where you get killed, and the Lampsi were the people who made those sacrifices. They didn't get killed. Now, the other people who didn't get killed, well, those were people who escaped or who uh, were able to get pace and look the other way, or were in an area where they were looking the other way because no one really wants to kill these people. Um, so, I mean, they only were, were still alive to be jerks about it because of whatever extenuating circumstances. You know, and, and so lift people back into the church. You know, it's like, they, they, they didn't want, like, no, you, 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 you've lapsed. You can't be in the church anymore. You don't get to go to heaven anymore. You know, you don't get to be saved anymore. And it's, I mean, it's, uh, 
Yeah, and and that would be you know if you're operating within this framework, um, you know this very which I think is hard for some people who haven't come from a religious background to understand just how all encompassing this supernatural worldview is. Mm-hmm. Um, this is enormous. You're effectively saying this entire group of people, uh, they're damned. Mm-hmm. They don't get to be in heaven. They're cut off from the church. They lapsed. It's their fault. They were too weak. So they're gone. Um, and this is, you know, this is probably talking about some people you knew. Yeah. And, and, and you know, what's frustrating about this is me getting livid about, uh, Jerks and hypocrites in the third century, in the, in the fourth century. Right. <laughs> but you know what makes me livid about it? Um, is that in the Christian Bible, there is a very famous story about the first pope. Right. Who three times denies he knows. I don't know that guy. No, I wasn't with Jesus. Right. I don't know. It wasn't me. And and like that's he's okay. I mean, when is you know the 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 thing that's so infuriating about church history is that often is the history of Christians not being forgiving, not being understanding, not being kind. Yeah. When the the core teaching is kindness. Well, and it's especially discouraging, uh, you know, how often we uh, see Christian denominations try to push, for example, for the Ten Commandments, kind of this, uh, you know, very uh, punitive style mm-hmm. Old Testament law. And uh, oh, I don't, I don't remember any Christians putting "turn the other cheek" or any of the Beatitudes on any courthouse steps. You know, how how bad would that look if in front of a courthouse you had Blessed are the meek. Yeah. You know, it, in a certain way, Dan, the church is like Marvel's X-Men. <laughs> I, I am so excited to see where this goes. <laughs> so Mar- Marvel's X-Men um, is, is a superhero comic book, um, which often, but not always, is a usually pretty clumsy metaphor for marginalized and oppressed identities. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's if there is a message, which I don't know if there's a, a message, quote unquote, but if there's a message to it, it's something about justice and, and tolerance and opposing oppression uh, directly. And there are a lot of people who will read these comics that mean so much to them. And they're, they're a bunch of dipshits. I'm sorry. I, I said swear, but I mean, sure. <laughs> they, um, you know, they are for the oppression of certain groups. Like, like right. how, how, how can this thing that means so much to you that you, that you, you think you love, be, you know, how can you not understand it? And right. you see that a lot with a lot of different uh, different science fiction fandoms, for example, like Star Trek. There's a lot of, like, super 
um, reactionary people who are deep into Star Trek, which is so flippin' weird. Um, and how all this relates to the church is that you have so many people who don't understand, like, the core of their own faith, right? Yeah. And they, and just like with X-Men and Star Trek, um, you have some people who will really dig into the continuity and, and the rules and who would win in a fight and, and all that. You get that <laughs> with the church where they, they dig into these rules without really caring about the spirit of it. I mean, even look at Constantine. Um, he he did a lot of bad things in his life. Um, he's a Roman emperor. They, they all did terrible things. but uh, And he knew that. And, but he also knew that once he was baptized, everything he had done before wouldn't count anymore because he would be born again with with the baptism. Like he'd be he'd be fresh and new. So he wasn't baptized until he was on his deathbed. So he'd get the maximum amount of of sins being washed away. And it's a very rules lawyer kind of thing. It's a very earthly, temporal kind of approach to the divine. That really isn't in the the quote unquote spirit of of the actual thing. Yeah, and I think a lot of people approach it that way, and I hate it. <laughs> I hate that. <laughs> you know, sure. <clears throat> well, so you you're presenting all of these issues that uh, you know as as we've been discussing, some of them would matter uh, very immediately. Clearly, they would, right? Issues of mm-hmm. salvation, but we're also talking about nerd issues, um, which you know, fair enough. I'm a nerd. There's a lot of little uh, nitpicky issues that I love to fight over, um, but I think something anyone playing this game would notice, Amabelle, is that none of these positions hold any inherent value in the game. Um, like there isn't a right option or a wrong option. There, you know, at no point uh, does uh, Homo Ujin, it's not worth more points than no. Homo Ujin. Um, or if you, if you forgive the Miletians, no one is more oppressed than if you deny the Miletians. You know, nothing occurs uh, particularly with one or the other. Um, and I think that that might surprise some people who go in expecting to have, you know, an orthodoxy or a value statement. So what's going on there? Why do you, uh, why do you strip out any, you know, any bonuses or powers or outcomes? Uh, be, because the thing is, this basically is uh, a bunch of, excuse me, a, a bunch of bishops, a bunch of of nerds getting together and deciding what's real and what's not. And we only say that it's real, only say that something's orthodox because they said so. So, you know, there's no physical reality that's affected one way or the other, right? Mm-hmm. So it's all... Sorry, so I want to be careful. Uh, it's all made up. Now, wh- whether or not you believe it to be true or not, it's something made by, 
by human beings, decided by human beings. And it's really about trying to center and focus on that aspect of it. So mm -hmm. that's why um, they're not given any inherent value. Um, I did a I did another game that's, I don't want to say somewhat similar, actually. Um, it, 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 maybe it's of a similar substance. I'm, I'm not sure. Um, it's, which is, it's, it's Homoeusion. Yeah. Uh, and that game is called 4X, which is a, a very right. difficult game in, in my uh, in my oeuvre, uh, so to speak. Um, but in that game, you have, um, I want to say there are six currencies in that game. Maybe a seven. So for listeners who don't know, this is a game about manipulating the currency exchange market. Is that correct? Yes. It, yes. It, it is not about conquering and expanding and inventing and... It's not, it's, not, it's, not one, no, it's not one of those 4X games. This is a game about foreign right. <laughs> currencies. And um, the currencies only have value relative to each other, and they only have the values the players give them. And the issues in this game function in kind of the same way. They only have the values that they're given by the players, by the force of the argument that they're making, by the fact that they're making the argument, by that they're making the, taking this position and implicitly inviting others to take that position with them or to oppose it. So what sort of statement is that making? So you've said they're made up. Um, so, I mean, it's just, I guess, just stating, you know, that this um, this is uh, something made by by people that... that this, this doctrine is not only has the divinity that we give it. So you do something similar with, uh, there's some special cards in the deck. So the game is, of course, played with uh, a deck of cards, many of which represent um, personalities. Um, so you, uh, of course, have, um, you know, uh, St. Eustathius and St. Alexander of Constantinople. Um, you have Arius uh, shitting himself to death. You you have all of. These. I'm so happy I found that image because I'm like, okay, that that's that's what's going on the card. That's the one. Yeah, I I had to point that out to my co-players, and they were just tickled uh, that that it's not just Arius; it's Arius on the privy shitting himself to death, um, which of course fits fits right in with kind of the mythologized history um, of uh, Arius going to uh, repent of his heresy and nope, he doesn't get to, uh, instead he shits himself to death. Now, so you also have some special cards in here called cannons, mm -hmm. which are cards that you can purchase and they give you victory points and sort of like the, uh, the other issues, these are worth victory points and really nothing else. Um, and, and you have text on here. That's really all that sets them apart. And I wanted to read a couple to give our listeners a sense of the tone of the game. Um, so here's two. Here's my favorite two. Are you ready? Okay. Um, canon one against self-castration. Yes. Many priests castrated themselves to ensure they could never succumb to temptations of the flesh. This was not really in the spirit of, quote unquote, resisting those urges. So the church told them to cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and I have to point out that um, that punchline um, is thanks to Dr. Liz Davidson. Um, yes, because I I, I, I I recently didn't have cut it out. I think I had knock it off, and she's like that, that should be cut it out. 
Yes, yes. And I was like, oh my god, yes, it shows me. Um, and the, then this this other one is Canon 20. Against kneeling, early <laughs> Christians stood while praying and felt that kneeling should only be reserved for penitential prayer. That is, you should only get on your knees when you've been bad and it's time to get punished. <laughs> <laughs> your your delight delights me, Amabel. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I I yeah, no, no, those are those are good. And you know, I tried to choose because there were twenty pieces of of canon law that were decided at Nicaea, and there are only ten canon cards in the game. And I tried to choose the ones that uh, either A would be the funniest. Or, mm-hmm. or, or B would have, like, the most purpose, like this one about, um, basically, there's a few of them that are about, like, the abuse of power by clergy. Yeah. And, like, okay, I'm making sure that I, that those are pointed out. I try to, I also try to write a joke for each of them, but I wanted that kind of pointed out. And then also there's the, the, the two really immature ones that made me laugh. Right, right. Well, and some of them would be hard to make a really good joke about. Like, uh, I mean, you don't have, like, Canon 7, where they're like, yeah, the, the Sea of Jerusalem is really cool. <laughs> no, yeah, no, that's that's difficult to... Yeah, yeah, how do you, how do you, uh, how do you crack wise about that? Um, so, of course, so, so here we have some examples of... Uh, you know, we have already talked about sort of this counter holiness in the game, mm-hmm. um, this pastiche that you're doing, you know, give, blowing a raspberry at the game. Um, before we get into what that may mean personally, there's some other details in this game that I think might surprise some people. So uh, you've, you've described it as a tableau building game, and yet it's a game where you can play cards into other players' tableaus. Um, what is going on there? Was that was that intended to solve a problem, or or what what does that represent? So, um, a little column A, a little column B that did come later in the development uh, to to solve a problem that has to do with schisms. So, let me talk really quick about the schism feature of the game. Yes, um, which I know you you just played the game over the weekend. Was there a schism? There was not, but we could see one coming. Okay, so how which, game... in a way is I'm answering my own question, but I, but I, me knowing the answer is not the same as our listeners knowing the answer. <laughs> yeah. So how how a schism works? Um, so how the game works is you're getting victory points for being on the right side of these issues, and those victory points are randomized. So for each correct share you have in an issue you're going to get between four and six points. And then you're going to get some points for a couple other little things. And if you have the most points, you win. Unless you have the least number of points. If you have the least number of points, but you have the most influence with other bishops, you provoke a schism and you win. And that kind of represents um, someone who has enough political capital within within that institution that if they leave unhappy then they could provoke a major because there have been schisms in the church famous like there wasn't at nicaea particularly because they took pains to isolate 
the Aryans politically. Mm-hmm. So that's what the, that's all kind of representing. And so part of the thing is that when you have a mechanic like that in the game, people want to do that. <laughs> P- people want to to be you know. Oh, it's hard to win that way. I want to be the one that wins by a schism. Yeah. And there were a couple of fairly easy ways to get a schism. And one way to get around that was this ability to play cards to someone's tableau. Because you could play victory point cards to their tableau. But you also could play um, cards... So, so uh, You also could play cards to... Um, Give someone because the cards themselves give influence. So you can also play cards to give someone influence. Let's say I can't afford to buy the last share that we need of, of the red issue, but if I give you this card, put it in your tableau, you'll now have that influence, and maybe you'll use it. Um, so there is there are cooperative and obstructive reasons why you want to do these things. And thematically, it's, it's about uh, sharing influence, uh, making connections with, with the other players, wheeling, dealing in a way, uh, even just playing those victory points to bump up someone's score so that they can't get a schism. I mean, that's basically, they're the ones who are putting their, their foot on the scale to, to decide that canon. Yeah. Right. So, so they're having influence within the church. They're they're having something to do with the final settlement. So you've made a number of games that we that I would describe as having shared incentives. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you're you're very well known for example for some of your train games, uh, which ultimately are stock games, which are ultimately about shared incentives and the value of things. Um, so what is that saying uh, in particular here in Nicaea um, that you have to put so much attention on who's winning and more than that, who's losing to the point where you might, uh, you know, deliberately uh, send a cannon their way, you know, not a, not a gun <laughs> cannon, but, a, but a, you're throwing them a bone. You're throwing them something that actually will pull them out of last place. What is that saying in terms of the political processes that you've already mentioned about the Council of Nicaea? Well, in, in this particular uh, context, you know, they want to come out of it with the United Church, mm-hmm. at least on the surface. And they want to avoid anything that's going to break it up. So uh, part of that is making sure that everyone at the table is... Everyone at the table who matters, who, who has the influence to matter, is at least somewhat happy with it, happy enough where they're not going to do something stupid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's a really interesting uh, position to explore. And you do see this in some other games. Um, there was a game Mark Herman did, a uh, three-player game. Can you help me out here, Dan? Oh, uh, Churchill? Churchill. Where you you, you 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 want to win, you want to have the highest score, but your score can't be too much higher than right. the loser's score. Um, and, you know, a lot of people hated that. Oh, that was the best part of that. <laughs> that's the best, yeah, yeah, that's the best part. That's the best part. That, that's the part yeah. that makes it work. That's the best part that actually 
right. simulates that you can't just run roughshod over someone. Because if you do that, they're going to pick up their ball and go home. Yeah. And that's something that at Nicaea, they could not just run roughshod over someone who, who without at least first isolating their power base, you know? Yeah. So that's kind of what's being replicated by, by all that. The fact that you want to come out of this looking like friends. You're, you're probably not friends at the end of this. You know, you're, yeah. you're probably, probably, you know, but um, not you personally, the players. It's, it's not that, it's not, it's not diplomacy. It's not that mean of a game. No, it but is. But <laughs> I mean, as far as, far as the, the, the people you're, the roles you're inhabiting, you know, it's not a united church. It's always a fractured church. It always has been, always will be. I mean, um, you look now at the Catholic church now, you, you have uh, these people who, who are like, Really not happy with the Pope, right? right? Like, yeah. like there, there's never, there's never been that unity. I mean, in in human, I'm gonna go further. In all of human society, in any institution, any government, uh, any group of people, any any religion, there has never been a unified anything. Yeah, it's always been fractured and factions all the way down. This is something that drives me nuts because you know you hear this a lot. Um, I'm basically been hearing this a lot all throughout history. Like, oh, way back when everyone got along and people were better and they were more noble and they were set aside. They that's never happened. Yeah, that that's the sort of thing that people who have read a very little bit of history like to say. Yeah, they they, they, only, they only pretend that it happened. I mean, if you you want to talk about even just recent history, you know, twenty years ago, uh, after September eleventh, you know, there's there's this myth that everyone was on the same page and everyone put aside everything, and that's not really true. Yeah, it's never been true ever because that's that's not how, and it's, it just plays into this 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 sense of nostalgia that humans have. For, for a time that never was, and nostalgia's poison. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what might set apart something like the Council of Nicaea, though, is that many people would consider that, you know, we, we talk about that in all institutions, right? Uh, that any time that there is society, there is going to be disagreement. But I think that what might uh, cause some people to raise their eyebrows is that when we're talking about something like the Council of Nicaea, I think a lot of people anticipate or believe that there that this isn't just society, right? That this is that there's divinity involved there. Um, that that orthodoxy wasn't just built from political necessity. That maybe it wasn't so cynical. Yet that's sort of the argument that you seem to be making with this game. Um, how does that reflect your own interactions with orthodoxy, uh, whether in the past or now? Wow, okay. Um, I mean, so because of the kind of church kid I was, I was, you know, very much as well, this is the way it is. This this is what's correct. And, and th- this book is the immutable word of God. And for a host of personal reasons that you know we'll get into when we get into that part of, 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 the, of the chat here um, I you know as I moved away from that that 
certainty, mm -hmm. I would get into stuff like looking at how the Bible was written, you know, how it was edited, how it was changed and altered, and the meanings changed and altered to suit whatever political thing was going on. And that's yep. also true of, of the church history. That's also true of the doctrine. These are all things that people are deciding, you know, so it, it's always constantly being revised and the meaning changed. And, well, and that's one of the things that, so I, I've taught, for example, a course on the development of Christian thought and the development of orthodoxy is a major point in that, in, in which people who approach Christianity from this high tradition perspective often are totally unaware of just how much politicking, how much of the mundane mm -hmm. has found its way into what they consider orthodoxy. Um, and this, and ironically, I think that this is an issue that intersects with pretty much every major Christian denomination mm -hmm. in that, you know, even, even 19th century revivalist or restorationist movements, including Mormonism, have this idea that they're, they're getting back to the way things were done. You know, that, that's a thought behind the entire Reformation, right? Mm -hmm. Let's get back to the way things were done. And it, and it just doesn't work because immediately well, which way that things were done and mm -hmm. which orthodoxies do you happen to like and which compromises are you making with local nobles? And, you know, we don't even talk about early Christianity in terms of orthodox and heterodox in most cases. We talk about, sometimes we'll say proto-orthodox because, you know, we're identifying the strain that would eventually win. Um, but, but early Christianity is, is very wild. And there's a lot of perspectives that are in there. So I definitely uh, jive with uh, what you're saying there. And, and I think any game that's actually about early Christianity in particular, I mean, it needs to have room for that, that wildness. It can't be like on, on rails, as it were, you know? Yeah. Well, and that's a criticism, actually, that I've heard leveled at uh, a number of restorationist movements um, is just, you know, if you really wanted to get to the core of, of what early Christianity was like, you would have to, in many ways, dispel with orthodoxy altogether. You, mm -hmm. um, you would have to get back to that, that wildness, uh, which is a scary prospect because how do you, how do you keep your hands on the reins. Yeah. If you get right, right down to what is in the Gospels, it's it, 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 it's about not getting into all these stupid rules and just like, be, be good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, it, 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 it's the, the, the spirit of the thing, not you know the, the 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 letter of the law and and trying to wiggle out of things and the thing is people will always try to do that mm -hmm. people always have and always will so it's you know even if you were to get back to some some very basic part of christianity it would just build up again in the same way because there's always people trying to find justifications 
and 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 say, well, I didn't really do this or say that. You know, it's ah, people. <laughs> so I've been playing a handful of games lately. Um, you know, people are designers in particular. We we're seeing designers who are learning that they can use board games to express so many ideas that previously no one had considered uh, that they could use board games for. So lately I've been playing a number of games that I would even describe as play as worship. Um, you know, that these are games that are trying to make a polemical point or a deep point about, uh, you know, you know uh, personally held truths that you're trying to express through the, the mechanisms of play. Um, would you describe Nicaea as that for you, as a game that's about uh, the, the, mon the mundane nature of orthodoxy? Is this reflective in any way of your own uh, spiritual adventure? Um, yeah, probably. I mean, it's, 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 so, I mean, I, I would say I would say the game attempts to express a, a degree of ambivalence. Mm -hmm. um, and that certainly reflects my experience because I, I went from having a very deeply held, but in many ways shallow faith to, you know, not really having faith to coming back to it, to, uh, feeling like, well, you know, I, I, I have some sense of the divine, but I don't find it in, in the organized structure mm -hmm. of, of, of the church. And I express it through a, what is still largely a Christian lens, but it's not necessarily orthodox. Not that I have a particularly peculiar or, or heterodox, uh, theology of my own or anything like that but mm -hmm. uh because really it's more just having some sense of faith without really getting into the trying to define it you know um mm -hmm. so i i think it just it, it I, I i think the game expresses or tries to express um some of my doubt and ambivalence, and um, also some of my anger to a degree, because mm -hmm. <laughs> um, you know, you know, I think more games need to be angry. Sure, I've, I, I've done angry games. You know, a this guilty land and the vote were both very angry games. Sure, um, this one is a little less overtly angry i think probably because it's expressed uh humorously which humor was not really would not really have been appropriate for those other games right so in in this uh case you've mentioned some religious trauma and that's uh so for those who don't know i i should probably mention up front that i have um on multiple occasions, uh, worked with queer kids who are in a religious context. Um, and in many cases, that context is <laughs> in spite of the actual faith tradition, um, in dealing with uh, the harm inflicted 
uh, by the religion. And so I, I have a lot of experience, unfortunately. I wish this weren't the case, but it, it is the case. I have a lot of experience working with religious trauma. Um, so I wanted to say that up front because, of course, this is a difficult issue and I don't want you to feel pressured. But in what ways is that religious trauma and that anger, uh, can that be felt in the game? Or is it is it just behind so many layers of, you know, first of all, we don't have you here playing the game with us. Yeah. Um, we never have that advantage of that direct rhetoric of the designers sitting with us and saying, ah, here's what I was thinking when I did this. Um, but how does that inform the game design uh, in this case? I mean, I, I, I think the religious trauma, because it informed my journey, I guess, as it were, um, informs my perspective. I'm not sure if the game, you know, is any kind of direct expression of that religious trauma, because that religious trauma was very tightly mixed up with um, dysphoria and um, coming from what was essentially a neglectful and abusive home life. So mm -hmm. um, that's not really in, in the game. <laughs> haven't, figured out, haven't figured out how to put that in a box yet. I'll get there eventually, I'm sure. <laughs> um, because like I said, I mean, I, so I mean, I was a church kid who, you know, bought into the whole thing, the whole orthodoxy. And, you know, this book here, these are rules for me to live by. If I follow all these rules, then I get to go to heaven and hang out with Jesus and be happy. And I really wanted to do that. Like, mm -hmm. I was so big on Jesus. I... I used, when I was a kid, I wrote fan fiction where I lived in Bible times. It was like a secret disciple. I hung out with Jesus. So, I mean, I was, I was really, I didn't have very many friends. <laughs> um, and, I, yes, yeah, so I really wanted, um, like to be somewhere where I was not in pain. And um, I remember uh, I was very concerned with, with living correctly and following all these rules and not, not doing any sins. And I remember there was a week. I went the whole week because I, I, I went through the Bible, wrote down everything looked like a sin, didn't do any of that. And then, the end of the week at church, I'm like, hey, I went the whole week. I, I did no sins. And the guy's like, uh, you just did. Sin of pride. I'm like, what? <laughs> no. How, 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 how am I, how am I going to get into heaven? Um, and I don't remember how old I was then. I might have been 8, 9, 10. But at that point, um, I started trying to get into heaven early. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And right. uh, I was bad at it, so that 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 was okay. Uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I'm still here, but um, well, and thank God for that. Unfortunately, yeah, that's that's one of the things that we 
unfortunately do have a number of interactions with young people who uh, have convinced themselves or been convinced that, you know, they still believe that suicide would be wrong, but it would be less of a sin than, for example, being queer. Um, and that is yeah. something that is a very present issue, uh, at least in Mormon Christianity. And, you know, at the time, I wasn't aware of my queerness, you know, and I, but I just, I was hurting so much and I, and like I knew, yeah, this is a sin, this is a mortal sin, but, uh, you know, God would have to understand because, you know, God knows everything and God would have to forgive me because I can't take all this pain. And that was all before I hit puberty and... When, when I hit puberty, um, uh, like, everything just felt so wrong. And um, it felt like God didn't understand, felt like God made me wrong on purpose and hated me. And that was a big part, eventually, of me moving away from my faith pretty drastically. And then, and then my father died. I, I was uh, 17 or 18, and my father had lung cancer. He was 38. He died. And uh, at that point, I got, went, went to my, like, super, super angry atheist mode. <laughs> and I was like, ah, oh, well, I'm going to do all the sins now. And then I felt <laughs> bad about it, so I, I didn't get very far with that um and that that kind of kind of almost a a self-inflicted religious trauma as it were because i mean it though you know you, you raise kids with this fire and brimstone stuff i mean it's not it's not good yeah you know um and yeah, the whole time I, I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know what it was. Because again, it wasn't until last year and sometime after our previous our previous uh, podcast appearance here that I figured out, uh, oh, that's, that's what it was all this time. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, that... Um, a lot of things make sense now. Now you've you, before this game has even come out. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you're you're touching a bit of a nerve, not only for yourself, uh, but for a number of people. So you've mentioned, for example, you've already received received at least one nasty note. Um, is this something you anticipated, given the Nicene Creed's preeminence, at least in theology, if not day to day? Uh, on a day-to-day level in modern Christianity, are you are you eager to embrace this degree of provocativeness, or is it just something that you, there's no avoiding it when we're discussing a topic like this? That's that's a really good question. I ask myself that. I, I ask that of myself sometimes. Like, why why am I doing this? Um, because yeah, I, I did get. I mean, I got a few nasty notes, but I, but in particular, I I did receive a. Threat, which this is the third time this happened because of a board game. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know you've gotten what 
two or three because of board games as well. Yeah, I've I've received. I would have to count, uh, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, I think I'm up to half a dozen. Oh my gosh, that's where, awful. Yeah, direct so threats sorry. over board games, which is uh, yeah, and I'm sorry that you've received a few of your own. Uh, people yeah. do love to take seriously their play, I suppose. Yeah, and it, well, the first was for this guilty land, and I wasn't expecting it, but I also wasn't surprised when it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, by the time I had announced Nicaea, I had already received the second for another game, which I didn't design, but that we published. Um, and I kind of figured, so Nicaea, like, yeah, so this is me poking the bear a little bit, but I still was surprised when I got it. And, um, and this of course happened after I had come out. So it, it had, uh, component to it that, um, intersected with my identity, which was not, Oh no, not a great time. Um, so, uh, not, not a fan of that. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, after I did this Guilty Land, I was like, well, I'm not doing any more, like, angry political games anymore. Like, <laughs> I, I've done this one. And then, you know, two years later, uh, I, I I do the vote. Yeah. And, and I'm doing Nicaea, so I, I don't know. And, you know, in a year or two, um, maybe two, maybe three, um, I, I have a game that is on the back burner right now that will be out, which will be about... Um, the misinformation uh, peddled by the tobacco industry. Oh, sure. And I'm sure that's going to get some fuss because they're, they're, they're people for whom that's still a very touchy subject. Not as much these days. I mean, I, I remember, I remember um, back in very early 90s, um, my mother went to the Blockbuster and rented this movie, Clerks, which uh, does not hold up very well. But um, she was really excited to watch it because she heard how funny it was. And I assume you've seen the movie Clerks. I have, yes. I'm surprised your mom would rent it. (laughs) Oh, so my my mother was not very religious. Okay. You know, uh, really, to kind of get away from my my family, I got into the, the being a church kid. Okay. Yeah, no, my my mother my mother had 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 trash, um, movie uh, taste. <laughs> okay. No, I mean like, I I I, I want to say like one of her favorite movies was Last House on the Left. I have not seen that one. Don't don't. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, but uh, but Clerks the first like ten minutes there there's a character who comes in and, and talks about smoking and I, the, the gag is he's I forget what the gag is there's some stupid gag with it but um, like she turned off the movie she was so furious that they were criticizing smoking oh. she, was, she was a heavy smoker she still is a heavy smoker I think to this day I mean I know she is because um, so I actually saw her for the first time like in 10 years like oh, really? two or three days ago Um, she dropped off some photo albums that she wanted me and my siblings to have, 
and and they still smell faintly of of cigarette smoke. So yeah. I'm pretty sure she still smokes. And um, she was convinced that my that that cigarettes don't cause lung cancer, and that my father the lung cancer was put in there by doctors. Oh, okay. so um, that uh, <laughs> sorry, I kind of get derailed there, but. But there are people who still bind to that misinformation. Right. I, and I guess I shouldn't be as surprised as I am, given how much this, you know, a game about that very deliberate misinformation about tobacco is un, is very distressingly timely. Yes. <laughs> I wish it was less timely. I, I do too, yeah. <laughs> I wish it was much less timely. Because oh. mm, the, the thing with misinformation that's so frustrating... Uh, it's like, uh, disinformation with a D, not with an M, um, is you when someone puts out this this BS in, in, into the world, it takes so little effort to put it out there, and so much more effort to right. debunk it. Right, Brandolini's law. Yes, yes, exactly, and and. So that, that this thing, I'm trying to figure out how how to model effectively, without it being just like, oh, this is an interesting simulation, but not much of a game, because you know the, it's a very asymmetric battle. Yeah. Um, but how do you make that work in 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 a two player game context? You know. Oh my goodness, that would be. I already have. Uh, some thoughts because I would imagine that one player would would uh, just always win because every time they take an action, it puts 50 tiles on the board. And whenever the other player takes an action, it removes one. Yeah. So that's, that, that, that's the tricky part. Um, And it's very, very much, you know, I mean, the, the battle to combat that misinformation was very much, you know, a war of attrition, like, like very slowly the, the, influence and power that the tobacco industry had was chipped away at mm-hmm. where, you know, we don't have TV advertisements for it anymore. Yeah. Right. And of course the, the thing that's really heartbreaking is that there was a point in the, the late nineties where they, there was that big U S attorney general's case against tobacco industry where they actually could have finally got gotten regulation and then they the settlement they just they just bought it off and now they're 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 going now that it's, it's spreading to the rest of the, the freaking world yeah i mean a, a lot of places in in the the quote-unquote you know developing world which you know that that's a, a bs term but um you know the, there's there's gonna be a, a, a epidemic of cancer deaths because of people um you know they're, they're marketing towards kids like they were yeah. in the 80s here and it's it's just so it's so distressing dan just just the the way uh things just get worse <laughs> i used well, to think you know well I, I hope in some ways the world is in some ways i hope we're improving um, yeah I mean, I, th- I think we, I think we are in some ways, because if you look at, you know, a hundred years 
ago to now. Is the world a better place for more people than it was 100 years ago? Probably. Will yeah. it be a better place 100 years from now? I mean, it depends if there's much for the world left, but uh, maybe. Um, yeah, maybe. I, I appreciate, uh, you know, I, I appreciate your willingness to design these games, even though you get some pushback. Because, uh, Amabel, I think that that, in, in your small way, is is one of the ways that we can make the world a bit more uh, caring, uh, a bit more receptive. Well, that's a comforting thought anyway. You know, I uh, it, it's frustrating because it feels like a whole bunch of us, a whole bunch of people on Earth, we're, we're all Cassandra, you know? Yeah. We're all saying, hey, this is bad. This is what's going to happen. And I'm like, no, no, I won't. And then it happens. Right. Again and again it happens. And it's like... So there's a lot to be angry about. and, and Which is good, because I, I make angry games. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Um, and there needs to be more of them. Like, you, 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 you know what the Holy Grail is going to be? is someone who can make an angry game, a game that expresses something, uh, but in a way that's accessible. Yeah. Because if you look at something like, um, no, I wouldn't say that games like this guilty land or the vote are really complicated. I mean, there, there are, I mean, even by war game standards, they're pretty simple and straightforward, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, these are luxury goods produced for people who are already very fluent in games. So they have a very limited reach, mm-hmm. you know, and, and this is something I worry about sometimes because, you know, I'm trying to say something about the nature of systemic oppression or the need for intersectionality. And these are, these are messages that, that really matter to me that I really need to get out there. And um, I'm expressing it as best I can, but because the audience is is of necessity so narrow for the type of games I make, for for the reach my games have, for for the complexity level of the simulation, you know, it doesn't ever really reach anybody who wouldn't already have internalized it. You know, am I actually expressing something? that will make someone think, or am I just confirming what people already feel? Um, you know, I, I, I think that there are, I, I think it, I think that some of your games have had an impact in that regard, you know, and furthermore, I would, I would argue that even if it doesn't have an impact on changing a person's opinion, that one of the things that you're doing um, that is important one of the things I really respect about you as a designer and the imprint that you've set up is that I have seen a number of people say that it is changing their ideas and their assumptions about what a board game can do. Now, I don't think of you as a big commercial designer, but I do think that more and more we're seeing commercial designers take cues uh, from more uh, experimental niche, you know, niche designers. Um, 
I think that is happening more and more. Uh, I think that we're seeing a, a sea change in the way that general audiences regard um, uh, like colonialism uh, and being willing to just receive games about colonialism as uh, totally uncritically a good thing. Now, I'm not saying that that's finished <laughs> or that everything is ideal or, you know, perfect with that process. But I think that we are seeing, uh, you know, more people pay more people paying attention to more complex games. I, I, I do believe that. I think that your games are having an impact. Um, now, since we're talking about Nicaea, <laughs> What would your ideal be, you know, if, if, if somebody, whether they're a designer or just a total layman, whether they're religious, whether they are um, a, a closeted trans kid who doesn't realize uh, she's trans, what is your ideal with Nicaea? What do you want this to speak to people? Um, I, I, I think I just, I just want them to th- to, to think, to, 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 to doubt or to question, um, to realize that, hey, that these, these are human beings who are fallible and that um, just to be a bit more questioning just just to have room for even if you know by creating room for doubts they they don't come to the same conclusion necessarily that that i would the 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 thinking through it is so important um but i you know but i I think also from a from a standpoint as, as a, like an angry p- political person, you know, um, you know, just don't, don't buy it hook, line and sinker, you know, just, um, don't uncritically, unquestioningly take something as being true. Mm-hmm. Just, just because some old white dude said it was. Sure. Um, yeah, I think it's, I think it's more about that, that process, you know, um, there are a lot of, a lot of works of art that I've, I've encountered where I feel like the questions and the act of questioning is more important than the answer. Sure. And I'd like to aspire towards that, I suppose. Well, Amabel, thank you so much for joining us this evening. Mm Mm-hmm. Is there anything you would like to add? Any last words you'd like to throw in? Any denunciations of heterodoxy? I see. I, I feel I'm, I'm on the spot now. I feel I need to be profound or something. Um, be kind. Be angry. <laughs> okay. Be kind. Be angry. Thank you so much, Amabel Holland. <laughs>